in the glossary at the end of being nobody going nowhere you say that karma by no means signifies the result of actions I'm not quite clear about this would it be possible for the next edition of the book to have an index the index is usually done by the publisher and if he wants it he'll do it apparently he didn't want it so he didn't do it the uh, index at the end of the uh, Iron Eagle was done by the publisher I brought the um, Being Nobody just to read out what it says about Kamma it says Kamma, action denotes the wholesome and unwholesome volitions and their concomitant mental factors volitions, intentions causing rebirth and shaping the character of beings and thereby their destiny the term by no means signifies the result of actions and quite certainly not the deterministic fate of humanity I didn't write that I don't write like that <laughs> that's uh, Venerable Nanachiloka Mahatera his uh, the Buddhist dictionary um, all we did was just copy that. So, why does uh, karma not signify the result? The result of actions is called vipaka. And it's only in the West that we have um, taken on the word karma, or karma actually, for both. The, uh, the word doesn't mean that at all. The Buddha said, karma, o monks, I declare, is intention, or volition, as it's, mentioned, as it's uh, used here. And with that intention, or volition, we make karma through thought, speech, and action. The word karma literally translated means action, but because we also make karma through our thoughts and speech, obviously it's far better to remember that uh, karma is the intention which then results in speech and action because the intention of course is in the thought now the result of that we also in the west have taken on the word karma but it's actually quite wrong in uh, the Pali word is vipaka the resultant and um, we can also maybe have a little more clarity about it if we can see it this way and maybe understand it this way. If something happens to us, it's, one can assume, it's just an assumption, that it's a karmic resultant, whatever it is that happens to us. But how we deal with it is how we make new karma. Now, if something unpleasant happens to us, something that we would much rather have not happen, and we become totally depressed, are sorry for ourselves, are angry at somebody else for it, we're obviously making bad karma because all of that are negativities. That's our reaction to the happening. So, new karma is being made through that reaction. If we understand what's happening to us is a result of previous karma, even though we don't know the connection, can't remember because it's very difficult to remember and know these connections, and don't blame anybody else for it, don't become depressed, are not feeling sorry for ourselves, but pick ourselves up and keep going, then, obviously, that's good karma. So the action itself which happens is a result of the karma we have made. Our reaction to it is a new karma we're making. And therefore, I say quite often and repeat, we've got to watch our mind. We've got to know what goes on in there and the intentions. Now, so many times we think 
we have the best intentions, but underlying it all is nothing but an ego support system. That's all what we're looking for. It happens over and over again, particularly when one thinks, I'm really doing good. One has to check that out again. If the intention behind it is nothing but wanting to do good, that's fine. But if the intention behind it is mixed, we should know it. It's all right to have mixed intentions. Everybody does, but we should know it. Is it something I want for myself? Or is it really something I want to give to others? Or is there a mixture of both? And how am I using that mixture? Which one's more important? What am I putting at the head of the list? Doing it for myself or doing it for others? There's nothing to blame. The only thing to do is to find out. So karma in the technical sense and in the sense that the Venerable Nanatiloka would have translated it only means our intention. But we're using it, we're using it in both ways. And of course, he would have um, made mention of that in his dictionary, that it means, that it doesn't mean the resultant, because the dictionary, of course, needs to be correct. What we use in our language very often doesn't quite conform with the dictionary, not only in Pali, in many languages. I call my father every few weeks out of love and compassion. He's bored and depressed, and his conversation is mostly idle chatter. I listen a lot and am bored, but he's my father. I don't have much to say to him. Even when my mother was alive, she died a year and a half ago. She did most of the idle chatter. He would get on the phone and ask how the car was, which I always thought was funny. I feel empathy for my father, and I would like him to change, but I cannot help. I know all I can do is love him. Any suggestions? Well, loving the father is, of course, the best thing one can do, and listening patiently is a very good thing to do. The Buddha said that the best thing one can do for one's parents is to introduce them to the Dhamma. It's a bit of a dicey affair because if the parents don't want to hear about it, one is uh, sort of talking against a wall. One can try. One can try in a way which might be acceptable, not so much with technical terms or with archaic language or with saying one must or should, but maybe telling some funny story and giving a simile or giving an example or talking about love. Practically everybody listens to that when we talk about love. They mightn't do it, but they listen to it. One can talk to anybody about love. So maybe that would help. It's a difficult situation, especially if the father is old and... Uh, I would, which I would assume, and um, has sort of his life is lived and difficult to change at that time. But maybe one shouldn't look for a change in the father. One maybe could look for what have I got that I could offer to him out of the Dhamma. And the Buddha did say that the greatest thing one can do he also said another thing about one's parents, which I um, isn't exactly an answer to this, but it's uh, also something we might find useful. If we were to carry our mother on our left shoulder and our father on our right shoulder for the rest of our lives, we still could not repay their kindness to us when we were small and couldn't do anything for ourselves. And 
it's something that needs to be remembered because we don't remember what happened when we were little and couldn't do anything. So that we made it up to here is for a great deal due to their care and concern. So to repay with love and compassion is a wonderful thing to do. To listen in patience is another wonderful thing to do. Possibly one can figure out what one could talk about in order to stop the idle chatter. Not because one is uh, um, negatively, uh, thinks negatively about the idle chatter, but because one realizes it isn't helping anybody. It's neither helping him nor oneself. So maybe one could introduce something which is a little more relevant. If not, one has to give up and try another time. I experience quite clearly that as long as I'm observing, there is no full concentration. In order to become one with the experience, the observer has to disappear. On that level, observing has to be let go of. But on a different level, observing can be used as a skillful means to loosen our identification. For instance, labeling thoughts, watching pain, just as sensation. Please comment. There are two ways that we have for meditation and one is calm and one is insight. In order to gain insight, there has to be somebody there that is watching it all, and that's our observer. In order to gain insight into arising and ceasing, in order to gain insight into our identification system, to gain insight into pain, how we react to it, Obviously, we have an observer. In order to become calm, the observer has to go. But the observer does not totally disappear. The observer only totally disappears at the past moment. The past moment is an experience without <coughs> an experiencer. Even in the jhanas, there is an experiencer. In the fourth and eighth, that experience is minimized to the point where one actually has that kind of feeling as if he or she might have gone away, but they have, they have hasn't. The next thing one needs to know is what is an observer? Who is the observer? So then one needs to find that out whether this observer is another and more subtle identification. It's usually the strongest one. It's usually the strongest identification because it appears to be as if that has to be me. Who else could it be? It's sitting in my head somewhere, which of course it isn't but we think it is. And uh, it's telling me exactly what's going on. So the observer is telling me. So if the observer is me, who is the me he's telling it to? It's all very confusing, isn't it? That's why we have to try and let go of that experiencer or observer to the extent that we can actually get the mind calm. And when that happens, the mind does gain more clarity. And as it gains more clarity, it sees a new depth, one step further. And as it sees one step further, then it sees another one. There are different levels of seeing. On the level of mankind, as a whole, obviously, there is this observer, which is me, 
which is telling me what's going on. And nobody really gives it a second thought that this is absurd. Because people don't go to those lengths. So that's the superficial level. But on the other hand, when we have an interest in finding out more about ourselves, certainly that experiencer, and I think I prefer the word experiencer to the word observer, because they both uh, have the same connotation, but I prefer the experiencer. The experiencer, of course, has to be there. Otherwise, we can't gain insight. The past moment, the only moment where there is no experience, we can't gain any insight from it. It's a result of insight. And we can't even say anything about it because there wasn't anyone experiencing it. That we could say about it, which is an interesting statement. So we have two levels. We have calm and insight, and in order to become calm, we must let go of the one that's giving the commentary and remembering and trying to gain access to something. It's particularly the one that takes care of the commentary. It's the one that we need to let go of. Maybe we can say that we can say that the commentary isn't really necessary anymore because we've already given it so many times that it's actually not so interesting anymore. If we were to write a new commentary in our mind, that would mean that we're gaining a little more insight. But if it's the same old commentary over and over again, it doesn't bring much. So we could say that to ourselves. Let go of it. It's happened so many times already. So we absolutely have to distinguish between calm and insight. And we have been talking about and trying to become calm, have serenity and tranquility. But I have said many times, and I'll repeat it because it's important, serenity and tranquility are the means, not the goal. But without the proper means, it's difficult. Very difficult. With the proper means, it's not exactly easy but it's possible. I don't know whether one can do it without those means. I leave that as an open question because it's often said that it can be done, so maybe it can. All I can say is that the Buddha did it with those means. So I think that's all about that. <clears throat> Outside the meditation hall, there is a pond teeming with hundreds of mosquitoes just on the point of hatching out. Peter put goldfish in to eat them, <clears throat> which does seem a bit like passing the buck. <laughs> I'm sure he didn't want to eat them. (laughs) But I know if they were in my pond, I'd be in a quandary about them. Anything you could say about this aspect of refraining from taking life would be helpful. Well, what comes to mind in that connection is that people who live on farms and are depend upon the food they grow, they have to have cats. There's just no two ways about it. Otherwise, they're not going to get anything to eat because the mice are going to eat it up. So it's a matter of who's going to live. And 
mosquitoes may or may not be a danger. I don't know. In many countries where I have lived, they have been extremely dangerous. And um, there were great government actions to spray them. Buddhist government actions in order to save the population from a great deal of misery. One can say to that that one has to make a choice, a personal choice. And this is the personal choice that was made here. And a personal choice has to be made on many levels. If we have a vegetable garden, we are undoubtedly killing slugs. Nobody has a vegetable garden with slugs in it. It's either the slugs or us. (laughs) (laughs) So, one has to make a personal choice. Who's going to stay alive? And who's going to eat? And who's going to get sick? As I said, nobody on a farm can live without a cat. In fact, most people have more than one because the the mice are all over the place and they love to eat the pumpkins and whatever else you have. And there's no way of protecting oneself. So there's a lot of things we have to do to protect ourselves. What do you think happens when we take antibiotics? We're killing. We're killing the bacteria. That's also alive. And if it stays alive, it might kill us. It's a personal choice. Some people don't like to take antibiotics, quite rightly so, because they're bad for you. But when it comes to a showdown, they do take them. So... We have to make a choice. And when we make that choice, we can also make it very consciously, make a very conscious choice that I'm choosing to do this, whatever it may be, in order to have more opportunity to be alive, as easier to be alive, or less dangerous whichever way happens to be the case. One can also make a point of talking to even the vegetables that one cuts in the vegetable garden and saying that one is sorry, one is depriving them of their lives, but they will be a great of great benefit to the ones going to eat them and one can actually promise the vegetable that one will practice with that additional strength of the vegetable within one because we're killing that too while we're alive we're killing and the killing of course takes only place on such levels where There is no way out. If we think, for instance, in this case, it's quite all right to have the mosquitoes here. Well, maybe we don't have any goldfish. But if we have goldfish anyway, they're going to eat the mosquito larvae. There's nothing we can stop them with. So if they're there, and if we have goldfish, they're going to do it, no matter what but we might choose not to have them and um, spray the hall with uh, some spray against mosquitoes. There are many choices we can make and we can just figure that always out for ourselves. We can spray ourselves with mosquito spray if they're bothering us. In the Asia, one wouldn't meditate without that. So, unless everything is screened, and in most 
nunneries it isn't. So one has spray of some sort or other. Or we have mosquito coils. Well, mosquito coils are also not guaranteed not to take the mosquito's life. So do I want to meditate or do I want to have keep the mosquito alive? What's the choice? There are many instances where there's absolutely no third choice. So if we have a third choice, we might consider it, but often we don't. And we can see from that what a gross situation this is to be in the human body. And it may even help us to have more impetus for the practice so that we realize this isn't the most desirable thing to be with our craving for existence, with our craving for reproduction, with our craving to be somebody. And all the um, things we do for protection are necessarily support systems for our existence. With that, we have to do that. But there's a story in the Jataka tales. The Jataka tales are stories purported to be of former lives of the Buddha, when he wasn't the Buddha, when he was very often an animal. And other times, maybe a very ordinary person. And the Jataka tales are sort of um, folk tales. And similar ones can be found in practically any culture. These are purported to be from the Buddha, that he himself told them, and they always contain a moral, which is actually the feature of folk tales. And this one is about a time when the Buddha was living in the forest, forest as a hermit, and a tiger came and the tiger was starving and the tiger had two cubs and they were whimpering and also starving and the story says that this hermit gave his life to the tiger so that she could eat and also then feed her cubs. Would we do that? It's a difficult question. I think the answer would be most likely no. It is a story which shows the greatest generosity that one can have, giving one's life. If people have that, they don't even have to spray malaria-bearing mosquitoes. Usually, one doesn't have that kind of generosity. So there is <clears throat> the ordinary level of being a human being, and then there is that exalted level which the hermit had who became the Buddha. He was a bodhisattva for many lifetimes and in those lifetimes practiced to the utmost degree. I have no idea whether this story or others like it are true stories or whether they are only a teaching device. They could very well be a teaching device. There are many teaching devices in the Buddhist Dhamma. For the past four days, I've been moving in and out of the first jhana. However, so far I have used five triggers. I suppose there's only a finite number of possibilities. I may cover them all at this rate. I thought I'd really got a handle on it, so to speak, when the top of my right ear did the trick. It even acted as a rheostat, so I could adjust the flow. 
Allah the ear has vanished. Comments. Also, would you recapitulate the steps for moving into the second jhana? Any helpful hints? I still have a few toes left. (laughs) Well, to tell the truth, I ha- that's the first time I've ever heard of a ear working for getting into first jhana. <laughs> um, first of all, it isn't working properly because it says moving in and out. If one's in, one's in. And one comes out when either one goes to second, or the concentration has lapsed, or the time is over. But in and out isn't good enough, so it's got to be more stabilized. Um, The triggers. It's possible that some part of the body is more sensitive than another, but I wouldn't like to really, you know, subscribe to that. It's actually so simple that it um, sometimes um, doesn't sort of dawn on one how simple it is. One of the necessities is to relax. Be with the situation. Not trying to achieve something special. You know, the jhanas are nothing special. They are states of mind that a meditator gets to when one has meditated long enough and has been become concentrated to a certain extent. There's nothing special about them. When it hits one the first time, one thinks the roof has caved in, but that's only the first time. Afterwards, it all simmers down to a perfectly natural um, happening. The mind just goes that way. There's no place else to go except being distracted and discursive. That's the only other possibility it has. So it can either roam around in the world and think of everything under the sun, or it goes into the jhanas. It doesn't have any other choices. So it's nothing special. And it's quite true that one does need a personal uh, trigger which helps one. And uh, having so many different ones is not so handy because it's much better if one can use the same one again and again, and then one knows exactly what to do. So, to reiterate, loving kindness for oneself. First step, essential. Then, not trying and to get anything, not looking for a delightful sensation, not trying to find it or want it, but just be there with the breath, if that's the meditation subject, or one can use the sleeping, whatever it is, or with the loving kindness, which is a very good um, access to jhana, just to be there. And then see what happens. They, I have nothing to say, I must say, about using any parts of the body other than what is called the spiritual heart, which is right here in the middle of the chest. So we, it's called the spiritual heart because we have a feeling that our emotions arise there. So when that part of the body can be helpful if the loving-kindness meditation creates 
a feeling of warmth there or a feeling of expansion or a feeling of um, lack of boundary. Other than that, it's the mind. Just letting the mind be, not making it anything, not trying to push it into a corner, to put it anywhere, just allowing it to be there. Allowing it to be with the breath, allowing it to experience the breath, and it comes by itself. The uh, moving into the second jhana, Ah, yes, it's important to find one's pathway to the jhanas. That means that one knows exactly what one uses in order to get in there. We let the attention on the delightful sensation go on purpose because we know that delightful physical sensations are still gross and there must be something far more subtle and finer in meditation. Everyone knows that one doesn't meditate in order to get delightful sensations. That's not, couldn't possibly one's goal. What it is, it's an entry. It's a pathway. So one lets go of that and that delightful sensation stays in the background. doesn't disappear for second jhana, stays in the background. And what actually happens is that one goes to that inner feeling of happiness and joy which is present together with the first jhana. If we are enjoying the delightful sensation. There's no reason why one can't use that joy as one's meditation subject. It's a natural progression. We have enjoyed what happened, and so after some time, 10 or 15 minutes, one can let go and go to the joy. Sometimes people are helped by saying the word joy themselves, like telling oneself what the next step is, that can be useful. Other than that, it should be quite a natural progression. There shouldn't be any difficulty, because at that time, having been able to stabilize first jhana we no longer have initial and sustained application to the meditation subject, but we progress from one state to the next on purpose. We don't have to wait for anything. We can do it because we know this is the next step. If the joy is difficult to find. One can at that time do a loving-kindness meditation and pay full attention to the heart center and see whether from the loving-kindness meditation the joy does arise. It, of course, breaks the jhana progression, but that doesn't matter. At least one gets to know what it feels like. That's only a last resort if it doesn't work any other way. But I would also recommend that when the first jhana is finished and one does the recapitulation that one finds very exactly what has been the most important aspect to get in there. One might have been doing several things, but which one was most important? So that one doesn't have too many choices that how to do it.
<clears throat> the next one is not a question. It's uh, more a comment. Please feel free to continue to use examples which contain references to food, such as yesterday's peace joint pancakes. I enjoyed meditating on the pancakes, which again furthered my understanding of sense desires and craving, all of which I was immersed in. The kitchen staff has been attentive and loving to us. So if any other reference to food comes to mind, I will certainly use it. I can't think of anything else now. The feeling of calm for more than a few minutes is unfamiliar to my mind. It keeps drifting off towards sleep, and it is hard to put in willpower without destroying calm. Any suggestions? Well, willpower is still preferable to sleep. So if one has to choose between sleep and willpower, please use willpower. Because sleep is a total waste of time. That's um, not useful at all. It doesn't say how the feeling of calm arises whether it is in the progression of the jhanas or whether it's just in the progression of watching the breath and stopping to think. It's very uh, common that people feel sleepy when they haven't done it very often because the only time that we know and have experienced when the mind stops thinking is one second before falling asleep. So, obviously, the mind has stopped thinking, so it has the understanding this must be time for sleep. And so it does. But instead of doing that, instead of allowing it to drift off, it's best to open one's eyes, to look towards the light, to move one's body, to have more blood circulation, to pull one's earlobes, to give oneself a pep talk and start all over again. Anything is better than falling asleep. Looking at the light, the Buddha has mentioned as an antidote for sloth and torpor. So it's not only that, not only looking at the light, but then closing the eyes and letting the light enter into the mind, which means we can see the light without actually looking at it. So having first looked at it, that's not difficult at all. And when there is light in the mind, it doesn't fall asleep so easily and has more of a chance to keep meditating. If that light is in the mind and well established there, we can enlarge it, big enough to sit in it, and it is also an entry into first jhana. I would imagine that the calm that's mentioned here, but I'm only assuming, is means stopping to think. Since that's very unfamiliar, one doesn't quite know how to deal with it. As it becomes more familiar, it becomes easier. The thing to do at the time is, of course, to be totally focused on whatever the meditation subject happens to be. Should it be one of the jhanas, then, of course, if it's the third jhana, there is the contentment that so all these uh, measures have been recommended by the Buddha against the um, hindrance of sleepiness. And uh, willpower is also a very good helpmate. Not the achievement syndrome, but having the will to stay awake and aware.
Meditation needs to be, one needs to be awake and aware. So the light is a particularly recommended subject in the mind against sleepiness. And if one can arouse it without having to look at it, that's also possible, it's very good. If one needs to look at it and then arouse it in the mind, it's just as well. What do they mean by Lord apportioning Dhamma in the chant? The Lord apportioning Dhamma, it just means teaching Dhamma. And teaching Dhamma in a way which is suitable to the listener. You always taught Dhamma in the measure that the listeners could grasp. So that's the apportioning Dhamma. You said that what happens to us is a karmic resultant, but how we deal with that happening creates our karma, good or bad. My father died when I was 16, and while he was alive, we had many hurtful and anger-filled times. I know I caused him a lot of pain and was rejecting and hostile to him. If he was alive now, I would have the opportunity to put all that right to the best of my ability. I certainly feel love for him now, but I suppose that can't undo, for want of a better word, that part, that past karma. We can never undo our karma. It's not a um, a credit and debit account. We make good and bad karma. And if the good karma is more pronounced, then we have more good resultants. If the bad karma is more pronounced, then we have more bad resultants. And usually we feel those within ourselves. It's possible that we make so much good karma that the bad karma does not have an occasion to fruit it becomes stale. You know, like a stale check that you can't cash anymore because it's too old. Karma takes a bit longer to get stale. But also, if one changes one's whole situation, not just outwardly, but that too, but also inwardly, it's very possible that some karma resultants, bad karma resultants, cannot hit one anymore because they do not have the kind of target that they would have had otherwise. So while we don't undo our bad karma, we certainly can do so many other things that the bad karma that everybody has made, nobody is exempt, may actually not be with us. The, um, the only thing to do in this case here, where the person whom we have hurt is no longer alive, there are two things which may be important. One is to send a lot of loving kindness to that person in order to eradicate anything within oneself which may still be painful or concerned with rejection. Whether it actually reaches that person is a mute question. The loving kindness in one's heart will do a lot of good for oneself and one's environment. The other thing that we can do is to have a learning situation. Never leave loving-kindness till tomorrow if you can do it today. The person might not be there anymore. 
and you might be forever after sorry that you haven't done it. Show your love now because you may never have another opportunity. That's an important learning situation. And actually it goes for everything, but in this case it's particularly pronounced. And then there's another thing we can do. Seeing that the actual father of this life is no longer available to be loved and to be helped and to redress any um, hurt that we have done. We can remember that the Buddha has said everybody has already been our father and mother. So show love and um, helpfulness and uh, care and concern to others. And doing it to others, think of them as your father and mother. The Buddha said, if of our past lifetimes, the bones of the fathers and mothers we have had would be laid end to end they would cover this globe. We've had that many fathers and mothers. And we have no idea. Some of them might be around now. So if we can think of them, of the people whom we meet, as former fathers and mothers, or even as future farmers and fathers and mothers, whatever, but better as former fathers and mothers, whom we might also not have loved sufficiently, we have a very good occasion to um, do something about that lack of love in this lifetime. And it will be to our great benefit. We are the ones that will benefit most. Because eventually we'll be able to have that kind of warm and concerned feeling for everybody. We're not going to have any exceptions because we don't know whether all of these people have been our fathers and mothers or not, so we're not going to take a chance. We're not going to leave out anybody. And they don't only have to be the people that are in the same country and speak the same language and have the same upbringing. We've been all over this globe, everywhere. So everybody could have been our father and mother. We've got two very important things there, which are really can be very helpful. Learning to do it now, not leaving it for later. And the second thing is everybody can be our father and mother. And also sending the loving kindness to the father who is no longer alive. I'll tell you a story how karma can operate. Not how it usually does, but how it can. It's an extreme. In the Buddha's time, there was a person was called Angulimala as a very famous person out of the Pali Canon. Now, Mala is a necklace and Anguli is a finger. So his name was a nickname, Finger Necklace. And the way he got this nickname was that he had been a student with a teacher in what is now Taxila, the first university town of India. And in those days, they didn't have universities that were big buildings. What they had were teachers living in a home, taking in several students. So one of them was this Angulimala. Of course, at that time, he didn't have that nickname yet. And there were five others, so there were six altogether living with the teacher and his wife. And 
this Angulimala was the best student and the teacher liked him a lot. And the other students were very jealous and envious of him. So they constantly tried to tell some very bad deeds that he was supposed to have committed. But the teacher never took any notice. And then one time, a teacher went on a journey. And now those five saw their chance. When he came back, they started whispering between each other and then whispering louder and louder so that finally the teacher said, what is this all about? And then they said, oh, they didn't like to tell him and they don't really want to tell him. And they did all sorts of things to make it more plausible. And in the end, they came out with it, what they had conjured up. They said that while in his absence, Angulimala had started a sexual affair with the teacher's wife. Well, of course, now that was one step too far. Now the teacher thought, well, this is going too far. There's really, this is awful. I really can't keep this boy here in my house. He wasn't sure whether it had really happened, but he was also not sure whether it hadn't happened. So he told him to leave. And he said that he was very angry, the teacher. And he said that he, that Angulimala should bring him the uh, fingers of a thousand paper so that as a payment for his past studies. He said that in anger. And Angulimala took him by his word and went into the forest. And, of course, he couldn't cut anybody's finger off without killing them. So he started killing people. And at first, of course, he was thinking of the teacher's words and was trying to comply with the teacher's instructions. But as he went on killing more and more people, he became very hard-hearted and bloodthirsty. As what you do, of course, changes your whole being. And people became very afraid of him. And what he had done is he was taking those fingers and he was sticking them on a stump of a tree to keep them there until he had enough to bring to the teacher. So the crows came and ate them. So then he made a necklace out of them and hung hung that around his neck, which made him even look more ferocious. And people were very afraid to go into that forest. Nobody wanted to go in there because, of course, his fame had spread, or his ill-fame, one should say, had spread. And he kept killing and killing. And then he had already killed 999 people. And then one day, his mother found out where he was. They had been looking for him all this time, and she found out. And so she decided to go to the forest and try to stop the son from doing these dreadful deeds. Now the Buddha saw that. He saw that with his clairvoyant vision. And he realized immediately that if the mother would go into the forest, Angulimala would kill her too. And then all hope for his redemption would be gone. Because killing your parents is such a horrendous deed that it takes so many eons to get past that to be able to practice again. So the Buddha decided he was going to stop him. And he went into the forest. And as he sighted Angulimala, he stopped. And he stood still. And Angulimala thought to himself, Ah, there's somebody I can kill and get the finger from. And he yelled at him and he said, Monk, come here. And the Buddha did not come. He started walking quite slowly. And so 
Angulimala yelled after him, Stop, monk, stop. And the Buddha said, I have already stopped. Have you stopped? And what he meant was, of course, that he had stopped killing living beings and breaking any precepts and asking Angulimala, have you stopped? Of course, Angulimala didn't know what he meant and started running after the Buddha, who was walking very slowly, and he couldn't catch him. And then that made them pause and think, what's the matter with this monk? There's something funny about it. What's he talking about? He says he has already stopped. He's walking. He hasn't stopped. And I'm running, and I can't catch him. There's something very strange going on here. And so he yelled to the Buddha. He said, what do you mean, monk, that you've stopped and I haven't? And then the Buddha told him what he meant. And it sank in. It immediately had an effect on him. And he said, can you help me to stop? And the Buddha said, yes, I'll help you to stop. And he said, Ehi Bhikkhu, come here, monk. In those days, that was all that was necessary to be ordained as a monk. So Angulimala followed him to the monastery where the Buddha was staying. And he got his hair shaved off and got the robes on. And then the Buddha said to him that he should go to the village every day to beg for alms, which is a common procedure. You have an alms bowl and you go to the village and you get your alms food into the bowl. So he did. And people recognized him. They realized who he was. And they threw stones at him and uh, clods of dirt. So he very unhappily went back to the Buddha and told him what had happened. And the Buddha said, look, that's nothing as a resultant to what you have done. Bear it. Be patient. So Angulimala said, all right. And so he kept going. And after a while, he practiced a lot. After a while, his whole demeanor changed and also his face and his looks Everything changed, and people didn't throw any stones at him anymore. So he could, in peace, go every day and get his arms. And he stayed there in the monastery for a number of years. It doesn't say exactly how many, but at least ten. And it says that after the ten years had passed, he became enlightened. So we can see that even a person who has murdered can become enlightened, although he has extenuating circumstances for his murder, but it's still murder. The extenuating circumstances were the fact that he was told by the teacher in anger to do this and took it for the a real order and in India, one is very respectful of teachers, particularly if they are also spiritual teachers. So that's where the extenuating circumstances, but that didn't change the fact that he was actually a mass murderer. And yet, he became enlightened. I like the story very much because it shows that no matter what kind of karma we've made, we all have a chance. It's perfectly all right if we do the necessary practice and change. So the karmic resultants do not always come to one because he changed his lifestyle to that of a monk and his whole activity became one of practicing purification. So all the bad karma that he had made didn't fruit. On the other hand, the good karma fruited that he made. So that in itself is interesting for everyone because we all have made bad karma. But there's also another story about karma 
Mahamogalana was the left-hand disciple of the Buddha. He had magic powers. The right-hand disciple was Sariputta. He had analytical wisdom. And Mahamogalana and Sariputta both were enlightened. And one day, some bandits killed Mahamogalana and pulverized his bones so that there was absolutely nothing left of him. And then, when that news came to the monastery of the Buddha, the other monks came to the Buddha and said, how is it possible that such a pure and great person as Mahamogalana had that kind of end, that he had this terrible thing happen to him. And the Buddha said that in his last life, the one before this one, that he got killed like that, he had instigated the murder of his father and mother. And that's the kind of criminal deed that does not disappear, the resultant does not disappear even with enlightenment. There are four of those and one of them is wounding a Buddha, one is putting a schism in the Sangha and one is killing father and one is killing mother. So he had not actually killed them with his own hands, but had instigated that. And so the karma resultant came to him, even though he was already enlightened. So what that actually tells us is that we don't really know. We don't really know what's going to happen to us. The only thing we do know is we can make good karma. We can make a resolution to do that. And we can be grateful, extremely grateful, if our life situation is such that the bad karma resultants are in the minority and the good ones in the majority. So that's all we can know and all we can do. Both stories are extremes, both concerned with murder. Not necessarily that we have all done that. But there are extreme happenings from which we can see that there are aspects of karma resultants which we cannot put into categories. We can't make sure. In fact, one can't make sure of anything. So, therefore, it might be helpful to remember that and also, I think it's very helpful to remember that in spite of the worst possible karma that one can imagine that Angulimala did, he yet became enlightened. <laughs>